Hello and welcome to the Swift Coders Podcast, where each week we interview an amazing Swift developer about their experience with Apple's new open source programming language. We hear their stories, learn their tips and tricks, and try to leave you feeling inspired and empowered on your Swift Coder journey. I'm your host, Garrick, and today's guest is Evan Maloney. Evan is an iOS developer at HBC Digital, where he works on Apple platform products for Guilt.com and Saks Fifth Avenue. Welcome to the show, Evan. Hey, Garrick. Thanks a lot for having me today. My pleasure. Thanks for coming on the show. How's it going? It's going pretty well. It's a beautiful day here in New York, finally. We're finally getting a little spring. All right. So, yeah, you're in New York. That's cool. I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, I think it's kind of hot out today. I haven't been outside yet. I had some breakfast and started working on some little projects. And uh, so so it's kind of sunny over there. It's been, uh, the weather hasn't been so good, but now it's starting to look a little better. We just, it seems like the last couple of years we got ripped off and didn't get a spring and it, it went from winter to summer. And, and this year it was about the same. Finally a nice day today. So it's, uh, took my kid out to play a little baseball earlier, as he likes to call it, bat. Uh, so just got back <laughs> home from that. Cool. You live in uh, New York State, New York City, I'm in New York City. Um, I'm in Long Island City, Queens, uh, right across from Midtown Manhattan, and uh, live right on the East River here. That's cool. So you work at HBC Digital. Is that where you guys have like an office, or you guys are headquartered in New York? Or yeah, we're down in Lower Manhattan, directly across the street from the World Trade Center, um, and it's a beautiful part of town to work, and I love it down there. So what is HBC Digital exactly? Like for some reason I keep thinking HBCS, the bank like company. Oh or yeah. Something. But yeah, that's that's, that's um, not the same thing. Not at all. So that's a totally separate entity. I think that's like Hong Kong Shanghai Bank Company. And so HBC actually stands for Hudson's Bay Company. And it's got quite a long history. It was founded in sixteen seventy. Wait a second. Hudson's Bay, like the um like the fur traders? Exactly, yeah. So Hudson's Bay Company at one point owned one-third of the landmass of Canada, and it was founded in 1670, and uh, and now here we are building software. I, I saw one episode, or I started watching one episode of this show on Netflix called Frontier. And oh, I haven't I seen that. So yeah, and in that show... Um, HBC, Hudson's Bay Company, is like a star in that show. And um, also, isn't HBC the star in um, that one show, uh, one movie with Leonardo DiCaprio? Um, what was it called? Revenant? Oh, I didn't see that either. I've, I've got two things for my watching list now. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. So, so it started out as... Like what? Like um, they were shipping stuff from England to America? Yeah, so I think they got a charter from the Queen of England and, uh, and from that point acquired all this land in Canada and, and were trading furs and, and beaver pelts. And, uh, <laughs> oh, my God. And, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's amazing to work for a company with that kind of history. It's, it's pretty cool. There aren't and too many so companies that, that have been around that long. How long have they had like a digital arm? Well, so their digital arm proceeded when I joined. I came to HBC through the acquisition of Gilt Group, uh, which closed last February, so uh, February 2016. 
So I've been there just over a year now. And um, so that's how I ended up at HBC Digital. But um, they've had they've been working on sax.com for a long time. So they added guilt to their portfolio last year. And that's how I ended up there. Wow. That's, so you were working at Guilt already. They acquired Guilt. And so now you're still working at Guilt, but it's like technically a part of HBC. Exactly. And and the cool thing is that, you know, when I worked at Guilt, um, and I still work on a lot of Guilt stuff, but I'm also working on some stuff for Saks Fifth Avenue. And what's interesting is that, you know, we went from a company that was only dealing with online and now we actually have stores. So there's all this cool technological stuff that you can get to work on in a physical space that you couldn't do purely online. And, you know, with iBeacons and things like that, just kind of getting ramped up, there are so many cool possibilities in that part of the business. Man, that's so interesting. <laughs> it's so interesting to think about this company. Like I'm looking right now, founded, yeah, May 2nd, 1670 in London. And uh, now, like, the divisions, it looks like mostly home and clothing now, but they're still, like, Hudson's Bay. Yeah, yeah so... so interesting. They have... Hudson's Bay is a store uh, in Canada as well, a chain of stores. So they have uh, other brands that we're not familiar with in the U.S., but here people would probably know us most for Saks Fifth Avenue, Lord & Taylor, and now Gilt. Man, that's so interesting. Uh I don't know, because like it's this old company, and you know, I don't know. And then now they're like making apps. It's like it's so weird. Um, yeah, yeah. tell okay. it. Software's taking over the world. I guess is the lesson there. <laughs> yeah, and I guess like I'm particularly um, interested, or I don't know what the word is um, by it, because I work at Farmers, and it's like a you know, it's not as old, but it's an old you know company by American standards in sure. terms of like American companies. It's a little older. And uh, to think, like, if, you know, farmers last as long as, let's say, Hudson Bay, like, what products will they be selling, you know, hundreds of years from now? Uh, oh, yeah, there are a lot of examples of, like that. You know, I think Nokia made tires back in the day before they made cell phones and then stopped doing that. Oh, my gosh. And that's sort of, like, why I even have a job at Farmers is, like, our team is there to sort of bring in this engineering transformation of the company. So... Yeah, it's really interesting. Okay, so you work um, at HBC. You work on the Gilt products and um, Saks Fifth Avenue products. Like, real quick, can you just tell us, like, what are those products and like, what is your involvement with those products? Sure. So I got started on uh, the iPhone and iPad apps for Gilt, which at the time were separate. Now they're a single uh, unified code base. Um, but when I joined Gilt in 2010, there were two separate apps um, that I was working on. We had a number of others uh, that came and went over the years, but the Gilt app itself um, really is the bread and butter of our non-web business. Um, and uh, you know, at, at this point, since I've been at the company, we've done more than a billion dollars in revenue on the wow. iOS apps themselves. Wow. Okay. So the Gilt um, products include the iOS app and the Apple TV app, and then the Saks product is what? Just an iOS app? So that's separate. Yeah. Saks, um, we have uh, an iOS app for Saks. We also have an Android app uh, for Gilt as well. Um, I don't work on that, but I sit right across from the guys who work on that, and that's a great app. Um, and uh, Saks is also going to be working on uh, 
apps for other platforms as well. But right now we've got an iOS app in the app store. So let's say for like, let's just make it simple, just the guilt uh, products like Apple TV and iOS. How many iOS developers do you work with? Is it just you or are there a few others? We've got a fairly small team. You know, we have had a hard time finding developers and we're we're hiring. So if, if anyone's listening and they're, they're looking for an iOS job, we're very interested. Um, you know, so we've got a small team in New York, uh, maybe about three people full-time working on the app uh, between New York and Dublin, and we have a developer in Russia. We're a very widely distributed team. We have people who have worked from various parts of the world remotely, and we're very remote-friendly as well. Um, but wow. yeah, we, ha- we have a fairly small team considering how much we get done, and, uh, and we're more than, more than uh, looking right now for people to add to the team. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome that you guys are remote. Okay, I think that's a huge plus. Um, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that um, in terms of like you guys hiring and what you're looking for and just even in just general terms, um, if you even have experience hiring people. But what I want to understand um, briefly, at least is like, so what's your role? Are you just one iOS developer on the team? Or are you sort of like the lead iOS developer or the senior iOS developer? Yeah, I'm, I'm the one who's been around the longest. And, you know, one of the cool things about where I work is that um, they realize that people need a career path beyond senior developer. I think that, um, you know, a lot of places it seems that the default is that once you reach a certain level as a developer, you get promoted into management. Um, and I, right. I've had that sort of thing happen at companies before, and I've realized that that's not a job that I necessarily want to have, and I'm not even sure I'm all that good at it, um, but I know that I can code. And so one of the great things about working where I am now is that they have this other career path. So now my t- my title technically is Distinguished Engineer, which basically means I've been around long enough to know so much about the code base that... Uh, um, you know, I'm kind of, uh, I'm, I'm seen as the guy to ask the question to when no one else has the answer about the iOS code base. Practically invaluable. <laughs> I, I, should I, I, I should pay you extra for these terms. You know, that's, uh, I should, I'm going to use that from now on. <laughs> yeah. Distinguished. That's cool. Okay. So yeah, you're like the main, uh, you know, like there's a distinguished engineer, you're, you're practically invaluable because you have so much knowledge of the code base. That's cool that your company has this idea, or at least they're even conscious or thinking about like a different career path for a developer. I was thinking about that the other day too. It's like, okay, I'm an, I'm an iOS developer, and then I become maybe like a lead, and then I become like a senior, and then what? I have to manage people. And I don't know, do I really want to manage people or do I? And so it's it's interesting. Maybe we could talk more about like that. Uh, what are the possible career paths and stuff? Uh, because I think that's a really important thing uh, to talk about. Okay, so we understand what, what you know where you're working and what you're up to um, and what's your role at HBC. Um, I want to get into how you got to where you are. But before we do that, I just want to talk about how we met and sort of why you're on the podcast. So um, sure, I believe yeah. that I just... I believe I received an email from John Coughlin or something Coughlin, like that. Yeah, yeah so, and he said, "Hey, you know, my uh, I got this developer. His name's Evan. He's super cool. Da da da. Want him to have you know be on the podcast?" And I was like, "Sounds good to me." Um, and now, and here you are now. And so that's sort of my perspective. But I'm really curious to hear your guys' perspective. You know, well, how did you been, find uh, out about the podcast and? 
We've been yeah, familiar ahead. with your podcast since the uh, uh, since the interview with Chris Latner, and awesome. um, so we sent that link around to all the developers, and we all listened to it. and And I was listening to your show at home while I was cleaning up the kitchen one night, and I kind of really enjoyed the way you had people on to kind of talk about what got them excited about programming and kind of what you know what drove them into the field, and um, I found that pretty interesting because I got into the field through a strange way and, you know, didn't really plan on, on this ending up as a career. Um, and I, I got the sense from listening to a number of your shows that that's actually a pretty common trait among the people, at least that you've spoken to. There are a lot of interesting ways that people have ended up doing this for a living. And, uh, right. so I kind of, just like, I kind of became an addict to your show after that point. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> I hope it's a I hope it's a positive addiction. It is so far. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So you just wanted to uh, be you know be on the show. I don't know. I thought maybe it was like I know you're you're participating in the Brooklyn uh, Swift, for instance. You gave a presentation. Um, you have like some open source projects. So I thought maybe it was like you know because I would never have thought that HBC digital is even a thing and that. I don't know that uh, it's like kind of raising awareness, you know, like we hear a lot about certain companies like Kickstarter, just open sourced a big project or, you know, Instagram open sourced a project. Um, so to me, it was like a little bit of raising awareness. Um, if you guys are um, up in the community and you want to be a part of the community even more, this is a great way to do that. And so that's sort of like what I thought. And um, it's also cool to hear that, yeah, you're just a fan of the podcast and you wanted to to be on the show and you thought that your story would like benefit the audience. Um, so let's get into this story then. Um, take, take us back if you can to uh, your earliest memory of programming. Sure. Yeah. Um, so when I was, when I was very young, uh, I don't remember the exact age, but at a, at an age when I should have been learning how to socialize with my peers, I realized I really liked spending time on computers and so when I was growing up, when I was in elementary school, it was just around the time when schools were starting to get computers. So I went to a school, PS 158, on 77th Street in Manhattan, and it was a very old school. It was built in 1898. Some of the alums included Lou Gehrig and James Cagney. Um, and when I was in sixth grade, they got three computers for the entire school that they put into this little closet on the fifth floor. And every few weeks, my class would get to go up there, and they would teach us how to do things like write a little basic program. So it was, you know, 10 print, Evan is cool, 20 go to 10, that kind of thing. And um, I just really loved, I, I don't even know what it was about it. I think just the fact that computers were so malleable and anything that was in your brain, you can kind of translate into a way to get into the computer. And so I think that might have been what interested uh, me in computing to begin with. Um, and then when I was in junior high, I took a computer class, um, and they had a bunch of TRS-80 computers, and I started kind of hacking around with those, and we had this great teacher, Mr. Booth. And um, yeah, I was just interested in them then, And uh, but I never really... I wasn't programming professionally. I had actually written a program that I managed to get sold in some stores near my house, 
but wow. I I hadn't done any programming for someone else where they would pay me to write software. Um, and so I ended up right after high school, between high school and college, getting a summer job at this company called Baseline. And um, I was kind of like their general computer admin guy. You know, we had a bunch of Macs with phone net connecting them to printers. And whenever something go went wrong with them, I would be the guy that would come over and try to figure it out. Um, but I had not had any formal training in programming, and I, I didn't really have any confidence in my ability to write software professionally, even though I'd done it as a hobbyist. And uh, the company had a developer working on this dial-up software for the Mac, and it was based on this French program called Minitel. Um, and not very many people in the U.S. had ever heard of it or much less knew how to write software for it. And this uh, developer quit, and me being the only other guy in the company who had anything to do with computers, he came up to me and said, you know, we've got this code, it's not finished, can you, can you handle this? And, and I asked, well, you know, what, what language is it in? At this point, I'd done some basic, I'd done some 6502 assembler on my own. He said uh, it was C. Well, I'd never dealt with C or even really faced it before, but I said, if, if you let me go and buy some books about it, you know, I'll try to read up on it and figure it out. So he gave me his credit card, and I went to the Barnes & Noble in New York, which had the best technical computing section at the time. And uh, I came back with a book on C, and I just spent the week reading it. And then the next week, I got this Mac with MPW, Macintosh Programmers Workshop, which was kind of the Xcode of its day. Um, and I just started hacking around and tried to figure it out. And, and eventually I did. Um, but it, uh, you know, I was pretty nervous about having agreed to this for a while because I wasn't really sure if I'd be able to do it. You said uh, you sold a program like at a local store. Yeah. How old, uh, not uh, like. Yeah, I guess how old were you when you sold the program? So I was about 12, um, and wow. I, uh, <laughs> I had written this program. It was, uh, it was like an operating system overlay for the Apple II, and it allowed you to do things like have subdirectories, which DOS 3.3, which was the Apple II operating system at the time, it didn't let you do that. And so I had this program, and, and I sent it out. I got it written up in a couple magazines, and, and I was selling it in a few stores locally. There were some software stores. And back then, there weren't any software chains. It was all usually just a local computer hobbyist who decided to open up a software store. Um, and so I went to these stores, and I tried to convince them to sell it. And they did. And it didn't really sell very well. Uh, there wasn't a huge market for alternative operating systems for the Apple II back then. And also, Apple ended up coming out with uh, ProDOS, uh, a little bit while later, which added subdirectories, so like the my big uh, my big advantage was gone at that point. You said that you were sort of a hobbyist, though, um, even to that point where you um, went out and bought a bunch of C books, and you said you were just going to figure it out. It sounded like you still considered yourself a hobbyist, um, but it sounds like you had a lot of experience. Why do you like, why did you feel that way? Why did you think that you were just a hobbyist when to someone else you might have seemed like you were very experienced? Yeah, you know, because no one had ever paid me to do it before, for one. And for two, I didn't really know whether or not what I was writing was any good. 
Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't have some outside way to gauge what I was doing really. So I just assumed that I didn't, you know, I wasn't all that good. I think a lot of times when people get into software, um, until they start meeting other people doing the same thing, it's really hard to get a sense of what you're doing and, you know, is this good? Is this bad? Does, you know, does this code look terrible? What am I doing? And I didn't really have yeah. any way to gauge it. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. Um, so at what point are you a real developer? Do you have to get paid to be a real developer? <clears throat> well, not, I guess right? I guess I thought I did, but you know what I didn't realize with that all this tinkering around that I was doing that I thought I was just doing for myself, I was really gaining experience and and just not right. recognizing it. And I think probably a lot of people who get into software do the same thing. You know, they they start playing around and they start learning things, and you can get pretty far without realizing that you've actually learned a lot, and you you still look at yourself the way you saw yourself when you were starting out because you don't recognize the, the, the advancements you've made. Right. And so it's about sort of validation or recognition. And so one ways that one of the ways we feel validated or recognized is by getting paid. So definitely like if you have those motivations, like go for it. However, if you want to feel like you're making progress or you are you are a real developer or you are becoming a developer or you have learned something like what you just said, um, I think one of the great ways to do that is to surround yourself uh, with other people or put your work out there, right? So as I always say, go to a meetup or maybe put your code um, on GitHub, for instance, and make it open source and show it to some people. Send it to iOS Dev Weekly or send it to uh, Swift Weekly Brief or This Week in Swift um, and um, see if they think it's interesting and they'll feature it in their in their email newsletter, and then you can sort of get that validation. I think that's really, really important. Um, early on, I've, I've told this before, um, Rick P., I don't know his last name, but I was almost going to give up. And then after one of my meetups, he told me uh, um, afterwards, he's like, you know, you're really, really doing good at this stuff. You're learning. And um, because of that, like, I felt validated, and um, it gave me the energy to, to move forward and to continue. Yeah, and I think that's why meetups are so good, especially for people who are just starting to learn something like Swift. If you're if you're getting into it and you can find another group of people who are going through the same thing, I think it can be really helpful. You know, at the very least, you'll realize one, you're not alone. You'll realize two, you are making progress when you might not recognize it other otherwise, because you'll you'll see other people going through the same thing. And the other thing I think is important, which you mentioned. Um, is that you told this person um, who asked you if you know you could accomplish this task? You said, "I can if you give me the opportunity to figure it out." And I think that's really important. First off, like having the uh, having like the mental awareness to just to to ha or have that strength, you know, or that courage or whatever to say, "I'm going to figure it out." And really give it a shot, but also to have those opportunities, to find those opportunities, to be given those opportunities to figure it out. And uh, so, for instance, like my first, um, you know, startup job as a programmer or my job at Farmers, like I really feel like I was given an opportunity, um, but I also found the opportunity. I also worked to make myself um, to put myself in a position to get that opportunity and take advantage of that opportunity to figure it out. And I feel like there's a lot of developers out there who are just starting out, and that's sort of what they need. You know, They just need that opportunity to figure it out. 
Yeah, that's a good point. There have been a number of times when I feel like I've been very lucky or been in the right place at the right time for an opportunity to come along. But like you said, a lot of times it's being prepared for the opportunity. It's putting yourself in the position of being prepared to accept an opportunity when it comes along. I even think that that first job I had where I was given the opportunity to spend some time learning C, I almost didn't get that job because I was waiting uh, to be interviewed. I think uh, the guy who was interviewing me was almost an hour late, and I was I was literally about to press the button to take the elevator on out of there. Um, when the other elevator opened and, and all of a sudden my interviewee, uh, my interviewer was there. Wow. So yeah, you mentioned something about an accident that got you into programming. Is that the accident? Uh, yeah, that, that was, um, you know, it was accidental that this, uh, developer ended up leaving the company precipitously. He was, uh, uh, you know, I don't think anyone had any sense that he was about to just get up and leave, but he, there was this project that was halfway, halfway finished. And if, if it hadn't been for that, I probably would not be writing software professionally now because I think that was the hurdle I needed to get over to understand that, yeah, you know what, I can do this. Wow. Wow. Okay, so I'm, I'm guessing there is a lot of information, a lot of stories um, between you know, you taking that uh, opportunity to learn C and figuring it out um, up into, you know, you becoming an iOS developer. Um, first off, did you end up figuring out C? I did, yeah. And that's um, that's how I ended up becoming a Mac developer for a while. Um, and I think because I was, uh, you know, a, an Apple guy for so long at that point, I'd started on an Apple IIe. I ended up, my first programming job professionally was writing software for the Mac so, you know, I spent some years in the wilderness doing some Windows NT stuff and some Java stuff. Um, but when Mac OS X came out, um, I wanted to hack around with it again. So it, for the first time in years, I had gotten myself a Mac when OS X came out and was always kind of back on the platform at that point. So when the iPhone came out, it was really interesting. And I went out on the first day and bought one. But there wasn't the SDK yet, so that was about a year later, I believe, when they announced that the general public would be able to write real native software for the iPhone. And that was really exciting at the time. Wait, so before Objective-C, you could write programs. I mean, I guess you can still do this, but um, before Objective-C, the way to write programs for the Mac was to write them in C? Yeah, and in fact, um, Objective-C really only came around with Mac OS X. So prior to Mac OS X, uh, most Mac programs were written in C. And if you go back far enough, when I, when I had my first programming job, they didn't, you know, all the documentation wasn't online, so we had these huge, thick books called Inside Macintosh. And I think uh, the, there were three volumes initially, and then there were five but all of the API headers were actually written in Pascal. So even though I was writing in C, I had these manuals with everything listed in Pascal, and I had to figure out, okay, how do I call this from C into Pascal? Because at the time, what they called the Macintosh toolbox, which is like the entire API of the Mac OS, that was all uh, geared towards Pascal. Wow, 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 wow. So you've seen... Um, a lot of the sort of uh, development uh, or you, you've seen the history of being a Mac developer, an Apple developer. 
Um, I can only imagine like what it was like back then. I feel like I came in at such a good time because I feel like we have it so good now, you know, like Xcode is a pretty good IDE and, you know, we have Swift and uh, I don't know. And like interface builder is like inside of Xcode where it used to be outside. And um, I don't know, there's just so much stuff. I can only imagine what it was like back then. It was, it was definitely a lot more challenging. I mean, for one, you, you, there wasn't an internet where you can just go to Stack Overflow oh and ask a question. Back in the day, there was this thing called Apple Link, which was a dial-up service that Apple had for developers. But I think, you know, I don't remember actually ever getting a question answered on that. It was very low traffic. <laughs> <laughs> I you know, like so back in the day, the, I feel like just that's kind of how the Apple, uh, Apple forums are for developers, the Apple developer forums. Like, they're pretty good, but it just seems like everybody's on Stack Overflow. Yeah, you know, I mean, people tend to look at Stack Overflow first, I think, for one, because you don't have to be logged on to see it. So when you ask the question online, the indexers are all going to find Stack Overflow before they find the the dev forums behind the reg wall. That's a really good point. Okay, so take us to the the time that you sort of became an iOS developer or, you know, you you decided to do iOS development. How did that go about? When was that? That was another very fortunate uh, accident and sequence of timing. So at the time, I was working at Reuters, um, and it got acquired uh, by Thomson, so now it's Thomson Reuters. And I was working kind of in their media research and development area. And I was working on, uh, they initially brought me in to work on something very strange and very cool. I was working on software for this uh, 3D virtual world called Second Life. Um, And when I was working on that, and my project was kind of uh, winding down, and the iPhone SDK had come out by that point, and there wasn't really anyone in the company looking at doing anything with it. Um, And, you know, always kind of being a Mac guy and, you know, liking playing around with Xcode and all that, I just took it upon myself to start writing what amounted to, at the time, a glorified RSS reader for Reuters. So it basically put all our news into this app, um, and it was kind of like an RSS reader that only worked for our feeds. Um, And I started showing it around the company, and it was one of those things where, you know, you end up building a prototype to demo something, and then someone else sees it, and they say, ship it. And so... Next thing I know, you know, it's getting love from designers and it, and it looks nice because, you know, the interfaces I tend to build tend to look like interfaces built like a programmer. So that's why <laughs> I, re- I really respect when people have the talent to come in and make something look beautiful and make it easy to use. So um, that's kind of how it started. I just started building this thing in the little media labs group and it uh, it took off from there and then... Next thing I know, uh, uh, we're getting approached by Apple to work on an iPad app. And so that's wow. how that's that's where we started there. And it wasn't too long after that that uh, a friend of mine who I had worked with um, both at Reuters uh, and at Gilt later, he uh, I ran into him and he was telling me what they were working on at Gilt. And not too long after that, I ended up joining him there. Wow, wow. Okay, so you have a lot of experience uh, with programming. Um, even though you came from programming in a non-traditional way, you know, I really do want to stress that. Um, I think like sometimes uh, 
you know, we feel like you have to have gone to school forever, you know, in programming since you were five to like be a programmer. But you were, you know, you were a hobbyist, but you didn't go, right? You didn't get like a CS degree in, in college or something like that, right? No, no, I was a management major. And that, that's the irony is that I went to school for something that when I finally was given the opportunity to have a job like that, I realized I didn't actually want it. Wow. And like you didn't take a bunch of uh, programming classes in high school or college or anything like that. No, like it was more no just, I didn't. I mean, you have a, you had a lot of experience, like you were doing it as a hobby. So it's like, that's, yeah. that's true. But, but, but any, you know, really, that's the thing. I think a lot of people can, you know, I just picked it up as a hobby the way a lot of people do. And a lot of people probably do that and not think of it as a potential career, but it might be. Right, right. And so I think it's it's great to see that, you know, someone who is doing or was doing something as a hobby now is, you know, very vital to um, a digital company creating, you know, mobile uh, or, you know, yeah, mobile type applications, um, Apple TV, et cetera, and, I, and iPhone. Um, okay, so and, and I so I want to just put that out there. Like, I, I know you have a lot of experience um, and a lot of things to, to offer, but we do have a short period of time. And so there's a few things I want to talk about, uh, which we already mentioned we were going to talk about, um, like, uh, you know, the Brooklyn Swift thing and converting apps from Objective-C to Swift and some new things I really want to talk about, uh, which you mentioned, like the career path and hiring. But before we do that, I just want to take a quick second for a couple um, announcements, okay? And uh, one second, let me pull my announcements up. Where did they go? Okay. Uh, so I just want to say real quick, I have uh, two new patrons uh, this month, so which is really cool. For those that might not know, I have a Patreon page where you can support uh, me. You know, I'm creating this podcast. I'm also creating swiftcoders.org. I have a lot of help um, through my meetups and stuff like that. Um, but right now, I'm really just trying to get my costs covered. And uh, so, yeah, so I got two new patrons. Um, Guillermo Alvarez, he just started Learn Swift San Diego, which I mentioned uh, previously probably. Um, so he just became my patron. Thank you so much to Guillermo and uh, good luck with Learn Swift San Diego. Um, and then also James Valaitis, I believe I may be saying that correctly. Um, yeah, reached out to me on Twitter and a super big fan of the podcast. Really awesome. So I just want to shout you guys out. Thank you so much. Um, next, one of uh, my um, one of my uh, Swift Coder members, uh, Truman Kane, he started Learn Swift Ventura County. I'm actually from Ventura County. So it's really cool. Um, yeah, so congratulations to Truman. Good luck with your first meetup. Um, so it's really crazy, like just in the past a couple you know month or so we've got a bunch of people starting meetups all around the world um not just the u.s but all around the world it's pretty awesome you've um, started a movement <laughs> yeah just you know following along other people you know it's uh, like coco heads for instance and and i didn't create swift so i'm just a proponent but yeah <laughs> thank you for for saying that um and what else lastly um i mentioned this um last time but i want to just say it again uh, we're doing a meet and greet, Swift Coders meet and greet at AltConf uh, at uh, AltConf 2017 on Wednesday um, at lunch. Uh, Wednesday, what is it, June 7th, I believe, um, at lunch from 12 to 1.30 p.m. Uh, you can register, find the link in the show notes. But yeah, uh, we already have like, I don't know, 50, 60 people registered. So I might have to hit up AltConf and ask for a bigger room, um, assuming you know everybody shows up. And yeah, a bunch of uh, past guests have uh, said they're coming, um, and hopefully even more will agree uh, to come. So that's it for announcements. Just want to say that stuff. Okay, so uh, Evan, 
I want to talk about um, a couple things. I think the there's a bunch of stuff that's really interesting that we can talk about, but some things that I think are really, really important, especially for a lot of our listeners, uh, would be like this career path stuff. And I'm really interested in that. And since you kind of mentioned it, um, let's talk about that real quick. Like, what what are your thoughts? Um, we mentioned it a little bit before, but like, what are your thoughts on like the career path for a developer? Like, what are the things that we can do and look forward to? Uh, what have you seen? And, and yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I guess um, a lot of it depends on what you like to do and what you want to spend your time doing. Um, you know, I, I've known a lot of people who are really good developers who make a different choice than I do, who decide to go into management and who love it and are really good at it. And um, in my experience, a lot of my favorite managers have been people who have also written code in the past because they kind of understand what my day-to-day is like. They understand what sort of challenges you face. They understand sometimes that a bug that seems like it should be fixable in two minutes takes two weeks, and sometimes the hardest-seeming thing is a one-character fix. You know, um, So I, I, I like the fact that there are developers who go into management. Um, but I also like the fact that there are other career paths open for those of us who might not necessarily want to go in that direction. And um, this is something that I know I'd faced in previous companies because I ended up at a level where the only place for me to go from that path forward was to go into management. And I did do that at one place, and I realized that I didn't enjoy my day-to-day anymore. You know, one of the things I love about writing software is when I wake up in the morning on a day that I know I'm going to be working, I'm excited to work on what I'm going to be working on. You know, I love getting up and writing code. I'm also a night owl. So, you know, sometimes I wake myself up and in the middle of the night with an idea and I have to get up and code it. And, (laughs) you know, I I think that's a, that's a specific mindset. Not everybody's like that. And because everybody's different, people are going to choose different career paths. But I really do like the fact that more and more parts of the industry these days are starting to recognize that, you need somewhere for someone in a senior developer position to go to next if they don't want to become the CTO or the director of technology or what have you. Okay, so you can sort of stay a programmer. You can maybe move up in terms of like promotions and titles and, and pay and stuff like that as a developer. So like a lead or a senior, uh, you can get into management. You can uh, become a CTO Obviously, you could always just start your own project, your, start your own business. Um, is there have you have you seen anything? I mean, I guess your case is pretty interesting, like becoming this distinguished engineer. Like, what have you know, uh, seen? Any other like pretty interesting paths that anyone took that you know of, or anything like that? I've also had a few friends who have gone on to start their own firms, and uh, I don't have any personal friends who have become billionaires from doing that. But I always, I always really respected the amount of courage it would take to go out and start your own business. You know, not only do you have to have a lot of uh, confidence in your own abilities, but you have to have a lot of confidence in the idea that's going to get you to take that risk. And um, so I've always had kind of a, a warm spot in my heart for the people who follow the entrepreneurial path. And you uh, mentioned 
that you uh, have, I believe you said you had kid, uh, at least a kid or kids. So it sounds like you have a family. You've been a programmer for most of your life, like a professional programmer. How have you, like, how do you feel about that? Like, is it a good, you know, job to have a family and you can like, you know, it's, it's secure enough, solid enough to raise a family and have a good life? Yeah, it, it certainly is in my case. You know, living in New York City is uh, it's a higher cost of living than a lot of places. So you might, you know, if you're not in New York and you're not paying New York rents, you might find that um, the quality of life out of programmer salary is even better. I've got zero complaints, though. I, I love living where I where I live, and, and I love this job, and I just... Uh, yeah, I couldn't imagine doing something else with my time. Right on. All right, so you mentioned uh, that uh, HBC is hiring um, iOS developers. Let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, I don't want to put you on the hot seat or anything like that, but um, like, what exactly are you guys looking for? Are you looking for a senior iOS developer, lead iOS developer? Are you, um, are you guys open to considering um, junior you know, resumes, anything like that, or...? We have a, an internship program in the summers where we would take people with you know very little uh, professional experience. Um, right now, for the size of our teams, we're looking more for mid to senior. Um, and as we as our team expands out, we'll probably look for more junior. I think one of the things that's difficult in software, and this may be challenging for people looking to break into it professionally, is that. Sometimes if your team is very small, um, it's, it's easier to find senior people so you can just kind of leave it hands off um, and there's not as much hand-holding. As the team grows and you have a bigger team and you're able to delegate more, then I think it's a little bit better. You're, you're more able to take on more junior people. And we definitely want to be in a position where we can hire people from all over the gamut. Um, and the only reason why it's more difficult for us right now is just the size of our team. But we are widely distributed. We have a big team also in Dublin, Ireland. Um, we have, uh, obviously, we already mentioned New York. Um, we've got some people at our company who work in Portland. We've got a guy who lives on a boat in Tampa. And uh, we've got, yeah, we're just a very widely distributed team. So you don't need to live in New York City to work for us necessarily. So let's start from the bottom then, internship program. Is that a paid internship program? Uh, yeah, I believe so. I, I may be speaking out of turn because I don't know the details of how it works, but I know that in, in years past, they've always had a programming component. And a lot of times they end up building something that's pretty cool and that we sometimes end up shipping in the app. Um, so it's definitely a good way for people with less professional experience to kind of get exposed to how we work and so that we can meet people that, you know, in the future might end up being really solid senior developers. You know, we, not, nobody starts as a senior developer. Um, so right. we have to remember that. Um, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of companies are probably in a similar position where um, they tr their challenge is to try to find a way to bring on uh, the most inclusive mix of people as far as range of experience, um, while at the same time having them be productive on the code base. So you guys are definitely hiring at least like one iOS developer intern for this program this summer? 
yeah, I believe it's more than one. Um, and That's cool. uh, okay, yeah, I'll give you I'll give you John's uh, info for the show notes um, because I think okay, he'll cool. he'll be the one to answer those questions. Okay, awesome. And then moving slightly up, then um, someone who's a junior who wants to potentially get like a junior position or even maybe that that mid where you can maybe take a bet on this person. Like, what is one thing that this person can do? Um, to stand out uh, when you know the resume comes across your table, or when they come in for the coding challenge, or for the on-site interview, like what's one thing that you want to see that this developer has done um, to show you that you know that they might be a good fit or something like that? Me personally, I love to see code. Um, you know, if somebody's just tinkering around and they have a GitHub page. I find that it's actually really hard for me to interview programmers and really get a sense of what their capabilities are. I think it's, um, I've never been through an interview process anywhere where I feel like, yeah, that really simulates what you're doing on a day-to-day basis as a programmer. So I, I'm telling you this fully aware that I'm not a competent interviewer for technical positions. Um, but I can look at code and I can get a sense of how someone thinks and whether or not they're kind of an organized thinker or a sloppy thinker uh, programming-wise. And, and I think that tells me more than experience or um, you know, credentials personally. Right on, yeah. I mean, I think you should definitely put your code up online for people to look at. And it's okay, like, you know, code you write today might look different, um, you know, like, then you write code like two months from now, or you're always going to be improving. So it's okay. No one's going to, you know, make fun of you or or judge you or anything like that. But definitely put your code up online and uh, have some examples to show people Um, that that totally makes sense. Yeah, and um, okay. you know, hopefully to put your audience at ease a little bit, I think no matter how much experience you have in the industry, you've had a scenario where you've looked at code that you've written a year ago and you've thought, geez, who wrote that? That's terrible. What did I do? You know, <laughs> uh, we've, So no matter how many years of experience you get in the industry, you're always going to have that moment of embarrassment over the code that you just finished writing a little while ago. Right on, right on. Okay, so yeah, guys, if you're interested, we'll all definitely have uh, information in the show notes so you guys can apply uh, to work with uh, Evan at HBC. Um, all right, let's move on to how you at uh, your company moved uh, or you are moving um, from Objective-C to Swift. Um, I know that you recently gave a talk about this um, at Brooklyn Swift uh, Meetup, and um, you mentioned this uh, before what what's going on with that can you can you talk like what what's sure. going on like what's the experience and yeah so we have a very old code base our original xcode project was created on christmas day 2008 and just under a year later in november uh the first app shipped in the app store um so there aren't a lot of companies that have app code bases that old certainly not in the e-commerce space where you're selling stuff through the app um and so we had, you know, after a number of years, I think anyone dealing with any code base has this moment where they think, oh boy, this stuff is just, we wouldn't do this again this way if we were to build it today. Um, you know, for one, all of the assumptions that you make in 2009 when you're starting an app, they're not necessarily the same assumptions that exist today. The carrier networks were a lot different back then. 
the state of development was a lot different back then. You know, our code base existed before ARC, so we still had retain and release and auto release all over the place. And so by by about 2013, um, when iOS 7 came out, for us, the iOS 7 update was very, very painful. And um, a lot of it was due to some of the decisions that we made very early on about uh, like the length of App Store review. When we were first submitting the apps, it would take two weeks to go through app review. And, um, you know, because of that, we tend to be a lot more skittish about shipping things that might break because if something breaks and you can't fix it for two weeks, that's a huge problem, especially when you're trying to sell things through your app. So, right. um, you know, what, what we, what we had done, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought here for a second. I guess you'll need to make well, an edit. <laughs> no, not at all. Oh, I was, okay, okay. Let me, I'll get back to it. It's, um, iOS seven. Well, um, I, I have a question about this, though, because it's something that I'm dealing with at, at Farmers, which is, and I, th I think you could probably have a good answer on this. It's like, how do you keep, how do you keep your interest in the project when, you know, it's sort of maybe like an older project and it might not be that fun to work with all the time? Um, and, you know, you, you have your personal projects, let's say, or you, you've, you're, you know how things could be, Right. But then you go back to this project and it's like not that great and it's like the patterns are bad or whatever. And it's like, how do you how do you keep yourself um, motivated? So, for instance, like one thing that I've been doing is like I keep telling myself like, OK, today I'm going to make this project more enjoyable to work with. That's all I can really do. So do you ever feel that way? And if so, like, how do you overcome that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think that I tend to feel that way more with certain types of tasks than with certain projects. Because, you know, one of the things that's interesting about working on a project that has the, this length of time behind the code base is that the problems become harder and harder to solve. You know, you can kind of think of a code base as like drying cement. And it's constantly drying as it gets older and older, it dries a little more and you can work with it a little bit less and a little bit less. But at the same time, we still have to ship an app that works and we still have to make changes to it. And, you know, I find that to be one of the more interesting things because right now in the middle of, a, of converting to Swift, we're making a pretty huge set of changes all at once in an app where we're only changing parts of the app. So now we have to get the Swift code talking to the Objective-C code and vice versa. And um, yeah, it's difficult, but I kind of find that to be the more interesting part of it because the challenges are so much more difficult. You know, you, you probably have a lot of people who are just writing pure Swift from scratch, but you probably don't have a lot of opportunities where you're taking an app that is in the app store that's generating tons of revenue that people are using all day, all the time, and take that and basically work on the engine while someone's driving down the street in the car. That's kind of what we're doing in going from Objective-C to Swift. And so to me, that's exciting because that's, you know, that's the challenge. Like, how do you do that? People haven't really mapped out a way to do that before. Um, but I know what you mean as far as certain tasks. There are always certain tasks that you do as a developer that may not be terribly fun. 
Um, when I think of a task like that, I think of merging, you know, having merge conflicts in Git. If you uh-huh. have two long running branches uh, uh, on your project and, you know, I've had these days where I've spent half a day merging things and, and I just hate that. But I, I know when I'm done with that, I'll get to work on something more fun again. What has been one of the biggest challenges uh, converting uh, this project? Which project is it, by the way? And then what? Yeah, what's been the biggest challenge? So it's the the Gilt iOS app, and um, you know, so that existed in Objective C going back to late two thousand eight, early two thousand nine, and uh, we were tasked essentially uh, with rewriting the entire thing. Um, but rather than rewriting a new app from scratch and then just replacing what's in the app store, what we're doing is we're taking pieces of the app bit by bit and rewriting them in Swift and then trying to hook up this Swift rewrite that we just built with the existing Objective-C in such a way that the entire rest of the app still works. And uh, and that's kind of hard to do. And what we did was we... We always knew kind of the parts of our code base that were the worst or that drove us the craziest or that just kind of weren't working well in in the current environment anymore. And so in our case, uh, for the Gilt app, it was deep linking. And specifically, when we first created the app, there was no way that you could go from a web page on Safari straight into the app without using kind of the uh, the private URL schemes. But now with universal linking um, in iOS, what that means is if you have a URL for your company on the web and you visit that URL and you, you have the app for that on your phone, Safari will take that URL and hand it to your app. And the job of your app at that point is to serve up the exact same content that the user would see on the web, but obviously in the app and in a format uh, appropriate for that venue and so forth. Um, so that was something. How's that, so how's that been going? Is is that pretty fun to work with the universal linking API? I haven't worked with that yet. Um, it was uh, for us. It was a big challenge, not because the API was difficult, but because of all the decisions that we made in the past. Um, so the way our app was working, as you navigated around the app and you went from screen to screen, the state would accumulate in the app. And when you went to purchase something, it would look at all that state and know what you wanted to buy. But when deep linking came along, what that means is that the user can go straight to a part in the app without navigating through all these intermediate screens. And because and therefore not accumulating all that state. I see. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. So what did so you then, do? Well, then, you know, we basically had to completely rethink how app navigation works. Um, But we had to do it in in such a way that it worked with the existing screen. So we basically have to kind of plug in all this state where where the rest of the system expects it to be until we replace those parts of the system as well. Wow. Wow. Okay. One uh, thing I think is interesting, we kind of mentioned it before, is that you have um, you have a lot of experience being an Apple platform developer, uh, and you know you were making Mac programs in C. I'm assuming you've made Mac programs with Objective C uh, and uh, iOS apps with Objective C, and now you're working with Swift. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your perspective? Um, you know how you know what's it like being 
uh, a Swift developer now compared to what it was like? How good is it? Uh, what are what are the goods? What are the bads? Um, yeah, what's sure. your perspective? Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting because you know so much has changed since I started doing it. Um, working in Macintosh Programmers Workshop in C, I mean that was basically like a, an emulated Unix environment running on your Mac. Um, but then going through you know Objective C to today, what I absolutely love about Swift is there is an entire class of debugging problems that I used to spend an awful lot of time worrying about and, and fixing that aren't even an issue anymore. Um, you know, the, just the, the type safety of Swift and the whole philosophy of Swift about making sure that the compiler can catch a lot of problems that you used to only catch at runtime. So, and this was something when we, when we made the Apple TV app, that was something that we built from scratch in Swift. We didn't have any legacy Objective-C code. And I can tell you, we never would have sh shipped that app on time if we had had to write it in Objective-C because we would have been spending a lot more time debugging things that simply aren't issues in Swift. So, um, yeah, I definitely feel like w we have certain things a lot better. The one thing I don't think is a lot better, um, when I had... Macintosh Programmers Workshop, it was uh, Macintosh SE30. And if I had to do a clean build of that app, it would take 30 minutes and I would go get a coffee in the meantime. <laughs> I kind of feel that way again when I build an archive in Xcode because it takes us a good 15, 20 minutes to build archives with the Swift compiler. So as, as much as the Swift compiler has given us uh, in terms of eliminating debugging and, and making apps safer, um, I still wish it were as performant as the Objective-C compiler. Yeah, and I've talked to a few of the, um, you know, Apple's, like the Swift developers, you know, it's open source and you can talk with them on Twitter. And um, I've heard them say that this is a really, really important uh, goal for, for them to make the Swift compiler faster because bigger corp, you know, companies um, are maybe not going to want to um, adopt Swift because of the wasted time, you know, of uh, waiting for it to compile. So that's interesting that you mentioned that. I mean, yeah, we have a, a big project at, at Farmers and, you know, a clean build does take a long time. I saw some improvements with Xcode uh, 8.3 and I think Swift 3.1 it was. Um, yeah, it's definitely it better. better. Yeah, but, you know, actually you mentioned something else that reminded me because it's the, totally the, the non-technical aspect of how things have gotten a lot better. The Swift team is amazingly responsive to the public. And I'm absolutely blown away because I've been dealing with Apple for so many years that I never expected that when I would email a developer at Apple about a problem in Swift that I would ever hear back from them, much less get a response in less than an hour. I, I'm constantly blown away at how responsive those guys are, how nice they are, how helpful they are to new developers but also just the volume of queries they must deal with. I don't know how they get anything done on the Swift project, but they do. Because like you said, the new version of Swift in Xcode 8.3 is faster. Um, but you know what I think is hands down the most eye-opening change, and, and I think the most positive change, is just how accessible the Swift team is to the general public. It's, it's night and day compared to dealing with Apple in the past. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. and. Uh during my interview with Chris Liner, like we talked a little bit about how like he wanted or the team wanted uh, Swift to be open source from the beginning and 
kind of how that conversation went about. And it's really interesting. Like Apple is known to be this very inaccessible kind of private company. But then at the same time, we have Swift being open source. And you're right. We're talking to Swift developers, Apple Swift developers on Twitter. You're emailing them. Uh, it's really, really interesting. And um, it must be really hard to balance that. And uh, it seems like they're doing a good job so far. Yeah, I, I can only imagine they must have given up some of their free time because the, they are so responsive and, and they're still cranking out lots of great updates to Swift. Uh, have you participated at all with Swift Evolution or Swift Open Source uh, following the mailing list or giving your opinions or even contributing? Um, you know, you have experience with C and uh, C++. Um, have you considered that or participated? At yeah, all? I, I was um, active more so at the beginning on the Swift Evolution mailing list. And to be honest, with the Swift 3 update, we were so busy with that that I kind of had to had to detach myself a little bit. Um, and I haven't been as active on it since then. Uh, I've got, I think I had one pull request of uh, a documentation change um, All right. uh, integrated. So I, gu I guess that counts for something. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wish I had more time to be active on it because um, it's really interesting to, to be able to shape the future of the language that you're working in on a day-to-day -day basis. I also have a, uh, I had a proposal that got deferred, so it's still on the deferred list. It's about um, weak self in, in closures. But uh, yeah, I, um, I, there are so many people on that mailing list, and it's so high volume that I did find it a little bit hard to keep up. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your proposal? Yeah, uh, if I remember it right, it was um, just basically about a simple way to upgrade um, weak to strong self inside a closure. Um, there's a common pattern where you mark a closure as taking weak self so it doesn't strongly capture self, but then in the closure, you do like guard let, you know, backtick self equals self. Um, to upgrade it again. And it's such a common pattern that I felt like there should be a simple way to do that in the language um, rather than have that oh, guard let self everywhere. Um, I see what you're saying. So um, I thought you were saying you wanted to, or I guess that is what you're saying. So in a closure, um, you will write, um, you know, open uh, open bracket, weak self, close bracket, right? Yep. And then now um, self is weak. Um, but then you, I didn't know, I didn't think about it that way. Like when you um, optionally bind, I believe it's called, with like yeah. an if let or a guard let, you're actually turning uh, self into a strong reference again? Exactly. So when you do that, it's not going to get deallocated from that point on. Um, but it's not because it's not captured by the closure itself. It's just executing inside the closure. So the closure doesn't capture it strongly, which is what you want. But then when the closure executes, if self is still there, you want to capture it strongly just for the duration of the execution of that closure. Right, just that in that scope of the of the optional bind or whatever. Right. Okay, that's interesting. So your proposal, did you what was your proposed solution? Uh boy, it was a year ago. I don't even remember. And, and since it's uh, been okay. deferred, I kinda I, you know, it was some it was some mechanism for um, automatically updating self. I'll have to go look at that proposal again. <laughs> like maybe, uh, maybe you know, like in a getter or a setter, you have, um, or in a did set will set, you have like the old value, new value. It's like implicit. Like in a do try catch, you have like the implicit error. That could right. be kind of cool. Like in a weak self closure, you have like an implicit weak self that's 
uh, non-optional. That'd be interesting. Yeah, and I know you can use uh, unowned for that sort of thing, but then you'll crash if uh, if the object's not there when you try to reference it. Okay, so we are fast approaching the end, but there's a few things I still want to talk about. Uh, so you um, recently gave a talk at the Brooklyn Swift Meetup. Can uh, you tell us about that? I mean, you 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 talked about um, moving from Objective C to Swift, but in general, like what what is that meetup, and do you know like who runs it, and what was the experience like? Well, it was a, it was a great experience. It was um, a good crowd. Uh, they had it in Dumbo, Brooklyn, which is uh, right near where the Manhattan Bridge and the Brooklyn Bridge connect on the Brooklyn side. Um, and uh, what my talk was about was it was really a talk that I had written because I it was the kind of talk I'd wished I had seen when we started going down the road to Swift ourselves. And it was really around um, dealing with Xcode and the structure of Xcode projects um, and how the structure of our projects needed to change over time as we learned more and more about the optimal way to organize our code base for Swift. So we had bumped our head against a number of things over the years in doing this, and, and my hope was that this talk could save some people some time. That's cool. And you had a good time? Were there a lot of people there? Yeah, it was a blast. I don't know exactly how many people were there. It was full. Um, there was actually a recording of it online on Vimeo, so your listeners can can uh, watch it if they like. Um, but uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it's a cool crowd. You know, there's so many different Swift communities now that you know, like like you did. You're you're starting all these communities uh, out on the left coast now around the world. Um, that that I think is really how you can get into this as a career path. Once you once you start making contacts with other people, once you start seeing the kind of cool things other people are working on at other companies, that I think is a, is a good way for people getting into this business to to get introduced to, you know, potential potential allies and potential future colleagues. Had you given a, a presentation or a talk like that before at a meetup? Um, I had uh, presented to IO Soho, which is the um, iOS uh, meetup in uh, Soho, New York, um, although they're all over the city now. Um, I'd given a couple talks to them in the past. Uh, one was about um, developing our Apple TV app and what it was like to do that uh, when that was still in beta. And uh, one prior to that on some Objective-C open source work that we had done at Gilt. Right on. Okay, and I also want to uh, hear about your experience presenting in uh, September 2015 at the iPad Pro and Apple TV launch. Uh, you came on stage and you demoed the Apple TV Guilt app with your colleague. I don't recall her name. Yes, uh, Michelle yeah, Peluso. about that experience. Okay, yeah, Michelle, so yeah. Michelle Peluso, she was the CEO of Guilt at the time when we were an oh, independent wow. entity. And um, I had a non-speaking role. My job was to work the remote and make sure that the app that we were working on matched up to what Michelle was saying. So um, I, I didn't have, I wasn't as nervous as I would imagine I would have been had I had a speaking role. Um, but it was still kind of a little bit nerve-wracking. Um, and it was really cool to uh, to see you know, all these other companies preparing to present. Sorry, yeah, tell us, uh, 
tell us like I don't know like there were how many people like what was going on through your mind like how did it go did were there any well, mess ups did we see did we uh, not see any mess ups like secret stuff or yeah uh, well I had messed up a few times in rehearsal um, there was one time <laughs> when we were presenting and and we were presenting to all the senior management of Apple and all wow. of a sudden I was starting to get out of sync with my remote work and so yeah I was starting to feel very self-conscious about that and by the time it was over I had worried that I'd blown it for us um, and that we might not actually be asked to present but I guess um, somehow we <laughs> we made it past that round of cuts and we made it on stage. Wow so that must be really cool like how was it just like being on stage in front of all these people like that's pretty cool. It, it was cool. There were probably several thousand people uh, in the audience at the venue, is at the Bill Graham Civic Center in San Francisco, and then um, we knew there were millions of people watching. Um, but I think if you can tune out how many people you know are watching, it, it becomes a little bit easier to deal with. Uh, so how has it been developing for Apple TV? I've, I've only played with it a little bit like I opened up one basic project and kind of started like putting some labels on the screen uh, has it been fun yeah it's a lot of fun it's uh there are more challenges because you know there's certain things that you can't do with the user interface that you can do with touch um, but if anyone has done any iOS work they'll be able to pick it up very easily there's really one main conceptual difference and that's the, the focus engine which is how the user interface kind of knows where you're directing your action. Um, and that's, uh, that's one big difference uh, with iOS. But for the most part, like most of UIKit is the same. Um, all of Foundation is the same. So uh, you, you could actually, we have a lot of code that uh, works for both our iOS and our tvOS app, and even some of the views we share between the two. Um, but the user interface as a whole has to be designed very differently because the use case of sitting across from your TV uh, on a couch is very different from directly manipulating objects with your fingers on your phone. Right. Okay, I just uh, remembered that this is the last thing I wanted to talk about. Um, the clean, uh, clean Room Logger, which is an open source project on your GitHub, but uh, particularly you mentioned like the benefits of open source at a big company. Um, I relate to this in some ways because you know, I work at Farmers and we're toying with the idea of you know, creating um, projects and making them open source. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm definitely a big proponent of open sourcing uh, for its own merits. And, you know, I know uh, there's a perception that if you build an open source project and spend a lot of time working on it, you're really doing work for the general public um, and not necessarily for your company. But I, I view it differently. What I've noticed is that, you know, when you have people that you know are coming over to your house at night, you're going to clean up your place a little bit during the day. And you might not do that if, if you don't know people are coming over. And I think code is very similar. If you know that the world is going to be looking at your code, you might make it a little bit more organized. You might spend a little bit more time on the documentation. And yeah, that does help the general public, but it actually helps the company doing it because what I find is that two of the biggest problems with, with inheriting code uh, from sources that you don't control is that it's not well documented or it's not well organized. But I find that if you know you're going to be op open sourcing something, 
you tend to work on the documentation a little bit better. You tend to organize the code a little bit better. It's kind of that mindset of, oh, people are coming. I better clean up. And so I find that there are a lot of code quality and documentation advantages to investing in open source. And so we've been open sourcing what we can at Gilt and at HBC Digital, um, partially because it's great for the community and because we use a lot of open source projects from others, but also partially because it just makes our code better. And so I think there's a great argument for going through the process of open sourcing simply as an exercise in code and documentation quality. Yeah, it helps keep you kind of uh, accountable. Were there challenges to convincing? Was there any convincing going on um, to say, hey, we have this cool project, we want to open source it. Uh, maybe this you know, company doesn't really know what that means and they think of intellectual property. Was it, dif was it difficult? I've worked in companies that have not embraced open source in the past. I'm, I'm happy to report that um, Gilt and now HBC Digital have both been very supportive of our own internal open source projects. Um, in fact, yeah, I've never had anyone tell me, hey, don't, you know, don't open source that or why are you spending your time working on that? Um, we've always, you know, from certainly for my time, I joined in 2010, everyone's been a big open source proponent and, and I haven't had to spend any time trying to convince anyone that, that we need to work on this or that open source project. Right on. All right, Evan, uh, last section. It's a little rapid fire section. Um, and I think I also, oh yeah, I just realized that I have another question I'm going to add to this rapid fire. I think it's pretty cool. So the first question is what drives you? I, I love working on problems and maybe puzzles. And I think that coding gives you many opportunities to work on challenging puzzles. And, you know, my brain just likes to work on them in the background. Sometimes I find that I'm doing a lot of my programming when I'm away from the computer, just taking a shower or walking around the neighborhood. Um, yeah, totally. And that's that's kind of what drives me, the, the enjoyment of of, uh, you know, an endless string of new challenges to face. Yeah, I definitely agree. Our, our brain is a problem solver. And, uh, okay, desktop or laptop? Laptop. Nice. Standing or sitting? I aspire to stand, but I usually sit. <laughs> right on. Um, get from the command line or the GUI? 80% from the command line and 20% from uh, Tower. Nice. And, and Oh, I and I should add Kaleidoscope to that because I use that for diffs. Okay, cool. And I, I can't remember. I think someone reached out to me on Twitter or maybe through my Slack team. They wanted me to explain what I meant by Git from the command line or the, or the GUI. Um, or maybe it was the test or no test, but I'll explain both. So Git from the command line, Git source control, uh, a type of source control. Um, we used to have subversion, I think, and now the more popular one is Git. And you can um, manage your, your, the, the Git, your Git history uh, from the command line, which, uh, you know, for instance, on your Mac, the terminal application, or from a GUI, which is just like, you know, a program, just like Xcode or Photoshop or Word. Um, with a graphical user interface. Um, and so some people like to do it all from the terminal. Some people like to do it from um, a graphical user interface program like SourceTree or, or Git Tower. And some people like to do both. Um, okay, Vim or Emacs? 
Oh, I'm all in Xcode. You know what? You know what's embarrassing when I have to use an editor on the command line. I use uh, Pico or Nano. Oh, cool. All right. Yeah, I gotta add Nano to that, but I feel like there's this whole Vim or Emacs like battle, so it's more just kind of like a joke. Yeah, you know, oh, totally. And um, I guess I would have to say Vim because I can't use Emacs. At least I can kind of make my way around VI. But uh, yeah, when I started uh, getting email back in the day, it was all on Pine, and that's the same interface as Pico and Nano. So it's like the only editor I still know how to use. Yeah, I never used Pico or Pine, Um, and I've I've barely, I haven't really used Emacs. Uh, One of my coworkers uses it. Okay, tests or no tests. Tests if someone else wrote them. (laughs) I'm just being honest. Right on. (laughs) I'll explain this one. I believe someone wanted me to explain it. Um, And basically, when we say tests or no tests, we're talking about whether or not we're testing the code in our project. And so let's say you have an iOS app and it's a tip calculator or something like that. You might write a test that, um, you know, shows that like when you have, um, when, you know, you bought something that's like $10, like what the tip is, it should be a dollar or something like that. And you would write a test to make sure that it's what you expect. So that's what we mean when we say we're writing tests or no tests. Um, let's drop. Uh, oh, actually, last one. I just uh, thought about it. What do you do when you're not coding? Hmm. Well, these days I've got a very energetic four and a half year old. So I'm doing a lot of time playing with him. Um, right on. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's where I'd say I spend most of my free time these days. Cool. Family time is important. Yeah. Uh, I'm hopping over to uh, Twitter to check out your uh, Twitter profile. I like your Twitter profile picture. It's some kind of uh, old oh, Yeah, that's uh, I mentioned a TRS-80 computer, which is something I use in junior high. That's, uh, that's uh, what's on my Twitter feed. That's awesome. And same with the uh, Twitter. Oh, yeah, TSR-80. It even says it. Radio Shack. Um, system drive two driver mem disk <laughs> mem disk six point two point oh copyright logical system interesting so you used to work with this computer that yeah that was the one that I played around with in junior high school that's what we had in the computer lab there wow it's super cool and uh, Twitter bio distinguished engineer we talked about that specializing in iOS Swift Objective C releasing lots of open source code thanks to uh, Guilt Tech. Uh, is that like Gilt's sort of uh, engineering arm? Yeah, and I, I probably need to update it. You can see I'm not on Twitter all that much because it's a little bit out of date. But uh, yeah, so that should say HBC Digital. But um, they've all been very supportive of our open source projects. So I appreciate that. Right on. Oh, and I'm seeing here on April 10th, you said, Dear Travis CI, thanks for auto cancellation. I actually just was trying to get my um, project, uh, uh, Travis CI integrated with my project, and I couldn't really get the correct YAML file configuration, and someone was like, just use BuddyBuild. And uh, with like a couple clicks, I had BuddyBuild integrated um, with my GitHub. It was like pretty amazing. Oh, I haven't tried that. Yeah, we've, um, we've had challenges with different kinds of CI over the years because every time Apple releases an Xcode beta, the uh, the non-disclosure agreement, I think, means that nobody like Travis can run it. So um, for months out of the year, we're always unable to build on there, and we've been looking for other solutions. Interesting, because you guys are uh, building with uh, beta Xcode? 
Well, yeah. So when, you know, for example, last year when, when everyone was updating to Swift 3, a lot of the Swift 3 changes were only available in the Xcode betas. Um, but I believe it's the licensing agreement that Apple has for Xcode where they basically won't allow anyone to make a beta available publicly. And I think running Travis or other forms of CI with the beta is considered uh, distributing it publicly, so it's probably not allowed. But what that means is that you know every time we're on a beta train with Xcode, we can't really use it with Travis or you know presumably any other hosted CI. That's interesting that you guys like. I mean, are you guys pushing code to pr- to production using be- uh, beta Xcode? Uh, no, but we're you know we we try to stay on the bleeding edge with Swift. So as as a Swift come you know new Swift comes out in an Xcode beta, we'll we'll try to get everything working in it right away. Wow, that's awesome to hear. Yeah, because at at Farmers like we're a little play it more conservative. I mean, obviously it's an insurance company, and uh, one of my coworkers he's like he's like. Man, I hate getting stuck on like old stuff because then like the new thing comes out and then you get stuck behind like and then it becomes even harder to upgrade. Um, and so there's pluses and minuses. Um, so it's cool. It's cool to hear you guys are, are like that. Um, yeah, we're okay. always supporting, you know, the older version of iOS. So we have the backwards compatibility thing going on, too. And what that means is when we go to WWDC, we get very excited about what we can work on next year, because usually that stuff isn't something we can ship to our customers now. Uh, so if people want to contact you online, where can they do that? Probably Twitter is the best option. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, but uh, Twitter's probably the quickest. Okay, cool. Like uh, just a Twitter, like a, just to say, like a mention, Twitter mention? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm okay, underscore cool. emaloney underscore. Awesome. And lastly, one piece of advice for people learning Swift. Go. Hmm, good question. Keep at it. No matter how much time you spend writing software, you can always... Spend a little more time, and you'll get a little bit better each time. There's always room for growth, no matter how long you've been in the industry. Right on. Yeah, I think it's great advice for sure. I mean, there's it's it's like sometimes it can be overwhelming. Like I just uh, told, I was having a discussion about uh, swifting, uh, sorry, scripting it with Swift, and, and uh, someone on Twitter was like, "What is that? And why would you do it?" And I explained it, and then. This person was like, um, oh, well, now I'll just add that to my ever-growing list of things I need to learn. And, like, it's a good and a bad in some ways um, because, like, it keeps it exciting and fun. But then sometimes we can feel, like, overwhelmed. Um, oh, yeah, it's very to, like, easy. So much. It's very easy to feel yeah. overwhelmed. And that's why I think if you, if you have a list of things that you are going to try to learn, you should feel comfortable when the list gets long and things fall off the bottom because you're never going to be able to learn everything. Um, and right. so you have to focus on something or else you'll never get anywhere. But keep at it is good because it's like, you know, not to get discouraged and just to, yeah, to keep at it. Like if I would have, um, you know, given up, you know, I wouldn't be here right now, but thankfully like I had a friend say like, you know, keep at it, you're doing good. And, um, yeah, I think if, really if you're having fun doing it, keep doing it. You know, that's right. really the, it, I wouldn't be doing it now if I didn't have fun doing it. And I had fun doing it from the very beginning, whether or not I had the experience. I think people can tell right away if they enjoy doing something. And if you can keep if you do keep at it. 
Right on. Okay, Evan, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your story with us. Uh, you know, playing with computers at a, at a pretty young age, but always um, being more of like a hobbyist with it, even though you sold your program, a first program at like 12 to your local store, and then um, doing a little bit of programming in high school and becoming like the default systems admin kind of guy, and then somehow lucking into this um, opportunity with this whole elevator. I can't remember exactly what it was, um, but it was like by accident, you got this job opportunity, and then um, you know, the whole like the thing where you didn't know how to, to program and see, but you were, you were confident enough to say you could figure it out and you went for it and you did it. And, uh, and then, you know, being a Mac programmer all the way up to being an iOS developer and, um, man, what was the first app that you made? It was, uh, iPhone app for Reuters, the RSS read, uh, feed, feed reader. That's pretty cool. And then, you know, uh, eventually joining Guilt and man, presenting on stage for the uh, Apple TV release. Like, that's super cool. And um, yeah, just having like a really, it sounds like a, a long, uh, a long, uh, nice life of being a developer. Now you have a family living in New York, living the dream in New York. And um, thanks for coming on the show and, and sharing your information. And also, uh, hopefully, you know, some lucky iOS developer can join your team as an intern this summer, and um, eventually, maybe you'll, your team will grow big enough that you could take on some juniors. Um, yeah, and and also making yourself available at that Brooklyn Swift meetup. It's really important to participate in the community. Yeah, and I'll be so, at yeah. WWDC. Maybe I'll see you out there. Oh, all right. Yeah, I'll, I'll look you for have... you at that event that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I'll send you a link, and if you have the time, definitely come. And then uh, anybody else that's up there can. We can all meet. Um, so, yeah, that'll be awesome. So, yeah, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and sharing all that with us. I really appreciate it, Garrick. Thank you. And that's the show, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Swift Coders podcast. Feel free to share the show with a friend, leave a review on iTunes, or recommend us on Overcast. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, contact me on Twitter. Until next time, go swiftly, my friends.